All right, for those of you joining us online or joining us later by listening to some type of webcast, podcast, or on our website, we're glad to have you. Uh, welcome, and we're so uh, uh, honored to have you in the class. If this is your first Sunday to join us, either here in the auditorium or online, we wrapped up just a few weeks ago a study on faithful angels. Now we're talking about fallen angels, and we're into uh, lesson two of that series. If you've missed any of those, you can always go to our website and pick up those lessons. They are all there on our website, and you can uh, catch up on what you have missed. Uh, We're talking, uh, of course, about demons because a study on angels would be incomplete if we didn't talk about the fallen angels as well. And we've been, first of all, discussing how the Bible and the ministry of Jesus and his teachings and the teachings of the apostles clearly establish demons as entities, as beings that we have to deal with. And, and last week, toward the end of the lesson, we saw that there are some 100 plus references to demons in the Bible. Now, admittedly, most of those occur in the New Testament. The reason, though, why that is true is because many of the references to demons in the Old Testament uh, are references to idols, but to, to the Old Testament believers, demons were energized, I mean, excuse me, idols were energized by demonic power. So it was a correct uh, uh, attribution when you would talk about an idol as being a demon or when you talk about a demon as being an idol because in the Old Testament era there was so much more uh, what we would call um, outward demonic, uh, excuse me, um, idol worship. Today we're just as idolatrous as we talked last week. It just takes a little different form and doesn't look as idolatrous even though uh, I'm convinced that as God sees it, it's, it's equally idolatrous. We notice that all of the writers of the New Testament uh, reference demons. Not every one of the books in the New Testament talks about demons, but every one of the authors of the New Testament does. Now, why that's important, it simply establishes the fact that the Bible unequivocally, the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of the apostles, unquestionably establishes demons as real entities that we must learn how to deal with or at least understand. Now, in the Old Testament, obviously you have Hebrew names for demons, uh, Hebrew uh, uh, references, and, and so there are a number of those. The Shadim that you find in Deuteronomy and Psalms, the Serim, which you find in other passages that I have listed there, uh, the Elim, um, you'll find in Psalm and some of the writings of, of the Jewish rabbis. Uh, Gad, which is not to be confused with the tribe Gad, this is a different uh, word, uh, was the demon god of the Babylonians, sometimes called the god of fortune, and was always involved in the worship of Baal, or sometimes you'll see it listed as Bel, B-E-L. But all of those are words used to describe demons in the Old Testament, and then the, the word Keter, which means a demon spirit or a destroyer spirit. So actually, you do encounter demons in the Old Testament. It's just under words and and titles that we wouldn't recognize as demonic as readily as we do when we're reading the New Testament. So those are the names that uh, I think are just important for reference sake uh, that uh, you find in the Old Testament. Give you just a little bit more time to write those down. And we're going to look then at a few of the Greek words 
that you find in the New Testament. Of course, you know this, but just as a reminder, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Uh, as we, we head toward uh, the end of the Old Testament era, out of the B.C., into the birth of Jesus, and the, the A.D. Uh, era of history, Hebrew was not nearly as popular among the common people. Greek had um, taken over, and so you had the Old Testament translated into Greek, which is called the Septuagint. So whenever you come across the Septuagint, all that is is a Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament. So let's look at the names that occur in the New Testament. Some of these uh, sound a little more familiar to us because there are many English words that are almost transliterated out of the Greek language. Uh, so, for, for instance, the word dynamo uh, is actually almost a direct Greek transliteration into English. There are just some words that in the Greek language that you just don't have an English equivalent for, so you do a transliteration where you just kind of anglicize the, the, the Greek word. So we have the word uh, diamond, not diamond, but diamond, which looks very close, of course, to our English word demon. Uh, you'll find those references there from which the English word demon obviously is derived. And of course, it refers to evil spirits. All of these, of course, do. Then you have diamonon, which refers to plurality. And you'll see how many times that occurs in the New Testament. 63 times evil spirits inferior to divinity. So we're talking about demons. Was also used in the Septuagint that I was mentioning a while ago. Uh, often when uh, idols and pagan gods are uh, designated. Which are demonic. And so that, that is uh, a Greek word. Then you've got the word nemata. Now we have to be very careful with that because that word is also in derivatives of it used to talk of the spirit in man or when we're talking about the Holy Spirit you'll find that word used. It means a spirit, as you can see, and is often used interchangeably with demons emphasizing that they are evil spirits. So they are spirit, and so the word nemata would certainly work. And then uh, you have the word angels, or often uh, translated angelos, where you put a Z, uh, an O right here after the L, and that just equates Satan's angels with demons. And this is where Paul, for instance, tells us that uh, Satan and his messengers are transformed into angels of light. Well, in that particular instance, they're not good angels. They're evil angels. And then, of course, uh, Jesus talks in Matthew 25 about hell being made for the devil and his angels. And the reason why he says that, of course, is because they were originally faithful angels and then became unfaithful and are now fallen angels, uh, what we most commonly refer to as demons. So that's just a little bit of, of, of homework on names that are used uh, in the Old and the New Testaments uh, to refer to demon spirits. But every one of those references, whether it's Hebrew or Greek, is always referring to the same kind of entity. We're talking here about an angel, a spirit, who uh, did not remain faithful to God, became unfaithful, and thus are fallen. And we, we deal with a great number of them, as we're going to see today. Now, number five on your outline, this would be the outline from last week, uh, when I say there are two classes, that's a little bit of a misnomer because when we're talking about demons, we're talking about fallen angels who used to be, as I said a second ago, faithful angels. Well, when we studied about faithful angels, we saw that there are all kinds of ranks, right? 
I mean, we have cherubs, we have seraphs, we have archangels. And who knows how many other categories of faithful angels there are in, in God's realm that remain faithful to him. I would, I would assume that there are many other ranks of angels, like, like a military, different rank levels. Well, when the, the fallen angels became fallen angels, there's nothing in Scripture that suggests that they became less organized, uh, that they lost their categories, their different power levels. And, and we saw when we were reading about faithful angels that some of the angels are obviously more powerful than others. Michael, for instance, and Gabriel are two angels mentioned in the New Testament that seem to be more powerful. And yet the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation, talks about a powerful angel. So it doesn't mean that, that some angels are more important than others in God's kingdom. It simply means that they're, they're different is what I think the, the implication is. Well, the same would be true for demons as well. So who knows how many different levels of authority there are among the demon ranks. The Bible really doesn't address them. There's no special name given to them. There are no fallen cherubs, no fallen seraphs. I'm not saying there weren't any cherubs or seraphs that fell. We know that there was one cherub that fell. And which one was that? Lucifer. He was the anointed cherub. It appears that he was the commander, the leader of what I would call heaven's honor guard. It's the honor guard around the throne of God. And so this is, this is what gave him such power and influence over all of the other angels. But the two classes that I'm talking about are more generic. One class is those free to roam the universe. Now, a lot of people think, well, that's all of them, isn't it? Or some people are constantly referring to the devil and the demons as in hell. Well, the devil and the demons are not in hell. And a lot of people, probably not you, but a lot of folks are very surprised to hear that Satan spends most of his time in heaven. Now that is a shocker for a lot of people because they see the devil as incarcerated in hell. Well, that time is coming, but it is not now. When you read the book of Job, you get this little window into how the devil works against God's plan and God's people. And you see the devil appearing in heaven among the angels. And if you remember, that's when the conversation takes place between God and, and, and Satan about uh, Job and his faithfulness and how God had blessed him. And the whole, the whole story of Job then uh, unfolds because of that conversation and Satan's desire to destroy one of God's choicest followers, one of his choicest saints. But uh, the devil and the demons are not in hell. Now, I'm not suggesting they can't go there. Maybe they do from time to time, but the majority of them are left free to roam the universe and, of course, doing the devil's bidding. But then there are uh, some demons that are presently confined, and we will talk a little bit about that. Uh, some angels who are extremely vile, now, they're all bad, right? Okay, they're all fallen angels. They are all wicked, but apparently there are some that are so horribly wicked, maybe it would be the upper echelon of Lucifer's leadership in his rebellion. I, I don't know. The Bible does not really designate. But there appears to be a level of demons that are so wicked and so vile that if God allowed them to roam the universe, i.e. primarily planet Earth, they would wreak such havoc that literally mankind would probably be wiped off the face of the planet.
Now, it's interesting that when you study the book of the Revelation, many of these demons are released during a period of time that I believe is a seven-year period called the Great Tribulation. And these really vile demons are released, and a lot of the wreckage that occurs outside of the judgments of God are actually, uh, is actually caused by these demons that are released. So how do we know this? Well, the Bible refers, and, and we'll come to it uh, uh, in, in, in a little bit, but uh, the Bible refers to two places. In the Greek language, they typically are all translated hell into English. Whether you're reading about the bottomless pit, or whether you're reading about this place called Tartarus, typically it will either be translated hell or in some cases the bottomless pit. But the Greek language uses the word Tartaros, and literally that word means um, a prison for spirits. Prison, as in incarceration. And then, of course, the Bible will sometimes refer to the bottomless pit. So let's look at some of these verses and get an idea of where in the Bible it talks about this special class of demons that are not free to roam the universe, at least not right now. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, Peter says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, that's referring, of course, to the fallen angels, the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Okay, now that word hell there in 2 Peter 2, 4, right there, that's the word Tartarus. Okay, that means a prison for spirits. So notice these angels are chained in darkness awaiting judgment. So this is not a reference to the final judgment. This is a reference to something before the final judgment. So these demons are incarcerated in this place called Tartarus. But of course here we're just seeing the English word hell. So Peter is referring to these demons. Now he then goes on to talk about this, the sinfulness of the people that lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. And how God never withholds his judgment eventually. Judgment always comes. Now it may come later than what we would expect it to come. If you remember Abraham... When God was telling Abraham that I'm going to make a great nation out of you and they're going to do great things on the earth and I'm going to, I'm going to do great things through them, but they're going to be captives in a foreign land for 400 years. And when you remember the reason that God says they're going to be captives, because the sin of the Amorites is not yet full. Now, the Amorites were a pagan people. They were sinful, wicked people. Now, we always see in Scripture that sinful, wicked people can turn to God and repent, and God will save them. A perfect example of that is Nineveh, and how Jonah takes the message to Nineveh. Nineveh repents, and all of Assyria responds. The entire pagan empire that we know of as the Assyrians, which were arch enemies of God's people. But the Amorites were being given four centuries to use up all the slack in their rope. And God said, then when, they, when their sin is full, then your descendants, Abraham, will come out of that foreign land. And, of course, we know that's the story of Moses and the Exodus. So that's one of the reasons why they are there. And the point that, that is made, understanding that, is that God always gives space for repentance. God always gives plenty of slack in the rope. No one will ever be able to say at the judgment, well, I just didn't have a fair shot. I didn't have a chance. But, but this is not fair. 
Well, first of all, God's holy. He doesn't have to be fair. Everything he does is right. But in God's sovereign way of working with fallen man, he gives us mercy, remember, which is not getting what we do deserve. And then he gives us grace, which is getting what we could never deserve. So anyway, they are reserved in in, uh, chains of darkness waiting for the judgment. It's a pretty vile bunch of uh, demons then. And then you go to the book of Jude, and it appears that Jude is writing about the same angels that Peter was writing about in 2 Peter 2, 4. Look at what Jude says. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, the old King James says their first estate, meaning the, the position in which they were created, which would have been sinless and faithful. They didn't stay there, but left their own abode. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So here Jude again says that they're chained up awaiting the judgment of the great day. Now I believe the judgment that he's talking about is plural. One would be the final judgment, yes. That's coming to all wicked beings, whether human or angelic. The final judgment is coming on all wickedness. But I also believe that the seven years of the great tribulation are God's judgment. It's God's judgment on a wicked world. In fact, from from Revelation chapter 6 to Revelation 19, all you really almost read about nonstop is the judgments of God being poured out on wicked mankind on planet Earth. Everything from bowls, like a cereal bowl, but a large punch bowl kind of idea, full of wrath, to trumpets of wrath, to you name it. All of these judgments coming on the earth. So that is also the day of judgment, which would then make it biblical if some of these angels, we assume, maybe all, but certainly some, are released during that period of time as a part of God's judgment on wicked mankind for rejecting God's mercy and grace all of these centuries. Man has plenty of evidence that he needs to turn to his creator, and his his wayward heart won't allow him to. Uh, Then you have the demons themselves recognizing where they're headed. For instance, in Luke chapter 8, verse 31, you have demons, according to Luke, begging Jesus that he would not command them to go out into the abyss or the bottomless pit. They know that ultimately they are headed there. Now, how do we know that? Well, when you go to the book of Revelation, you find that during the thousand-year reign of Christ, we often call the millennium simply because that's the Greek word for thousand, so you'll hear it called the millennial reign, Satan and his demons are locked up in the bottomless pit for that entire thousand-year period of time. That's not their final judgment. The ultimate final judgment they face at the great white throne judgment along with all the other wicked. But you have them locked up in the bottomless pit. So here are these these demons who are encountering Jesus and they're begging him not to to lock them up in this bottomless pit. Uh, There are other passages of scripture where they ask him if he's come to torment them before time, meaning early. And so they recognize where they are headed. And they know that their ultimate um, judgment is coming. And some would say, well, then why in the world don't they repent? Well, first of all, they had that opportunity and they lost it. They were perfect and they chose to follow Lucifer. But secondly, they're really no different than a lot of wicked people who I think get it. 
I mean, think of a George Soros. I mean, think, I mean, it's one of the more wicked people that I can think of. Or Bill Gates, for that matter. But George Soros in particular, because he's certainly headed toward the end of his life. You would think that someone staring at eternity like a Bill and Hillary Clinton might actually want to show some kind of repentance, especially since Bill Clinton grew up in church in Little Rock, Arkansas. You would think that some of that would have stuck, but apparently it didn't. And religion to them is just a useful tool to be pulled out of the toolbox anytime they need it when they're talking to a Christian crowd. But if they're talking to a godless crowd... That goes back in the toolbox, right? Well, you would think they would get it. So the demons don't get it either. And then when you go to Revelation chapter 9, you have uh, this this, uh, uh, cryptic language of the fifth angel sounding his trumpet. And he saw, John said, I saw a star fall from heaven to earth. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit and smoke rose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth. Now remember, the book of Revelation is written with a lot of imagery. So these are not locusts in in our common vernacular. We're not talking here about large grasshoppers. We're talking about spirits that John says were like locusts. They boil out of the bottomless pit almost like smoke. They aren't smoke. They are demons. But you've seen things that at a distance look like smoke, and then you get close enough, and it might be a huge flock of birds. I mean, there's nothing weird about this language. He's just using imagery. And he says, And the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came on the earth. To them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. It doesn't say they're scorpions. They have power like scorpions. And remember in John's day, especially in the arid Middle East, there was uh, very few things. There were very few things more dreaded than the sting of a scorpion. Some of those scorpions are as poisonous as a cobra and will kill you. But if they don't, they're incredibly painful. Even the ones we have here are incredibly painful. If you've ever been stung by a scorpion, that's a whole different kind of sting. And that hurts. They had tails like scorpions. There were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months. And they had as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. Now, we're talking about ranks and levels of power and authority of angels, whose name in the Greek is Abaddon or Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. So he has a name. One of the interesting things that we find about angels, both faithful and fallen, is that they have names. Michael, Gabriel, Lucifer, Abaddon, Apollyon, they have names. Which means they are persons. They have personality. We won't get to that today, but that's exactly what the Bible teaches. Now, we've already seen that with the faithful angels, that they have personality. Well, the fallen angels are just previous faithful angels that became unfaithful. Now they're fallen. They still have personalities. They still retain their names. Countless millions, billions, maybe trillions of names. Now, to your new outline... um, Demons were originally created as good angels. We've, we've said that already, but in a, in a series like this, I want to try to cover all the points so that if you are taking notes, 
and you go back and refer to those, it's, it, it all kinds of make, kind of makes sense. And it's not just things that I've said audibly, but you didn't write down. So demons were originally created as good angels. Uh, Colossians 1.16, a verse that we looked at earlier when we were studying about faithful angels, makes it clear that everything that exists is ultimately a creation of Jesus himself. Colossians 1.16, for by him, meaning Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. And then Paul says, whether you can see them or you can't see them. Or whether you can see it or you can't see it. So like, for instance, electricity. It's hard to see unless you can get it to arc. It's invisible, generally speaking. But God created it. A magnetic field on planet Earth that makes all of our electrical gadgetry work. Can't see it. But God created it. But then he goes on to say, not just visible and invisible, but beings, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Meaning that ultimately, God's creation was an extension of himself. It's created for him. So, everything, and of course, wrapped up in those thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers would be the faithful angels, all originally, and then by virtue of their having been created when they were faithful, when they become unfaithful, they're still the creation of God. They're just, sadly, uh, the, the fallen uh, portion of, of creation. So, uh, the demons were originally created, but they were not created as demons, and this is something that we all kind of instinctively know if we're Christian, but we sometimes don't know how to articulate it. Because people will ask the question, well, if God is such a God of love, then why did he create the devil? Why did he create the demons? Why did he create a world of such suffering and sorrow and sickness and pain and ultimately death? Why? Well, your answer is always, he didn't. Now, he did, but he didn't. I mean, he didn't create Satan. Lucifer did. God created Lucifer. Remember, Ezekiel 28. Ezekiel tells us that Lucifer was perfect from his creation till iniquity was found in him. And it was Lucifer who rose up with pride against God, led a rebellion, and fell, who became the devil and or Satan. So it's Lucifer who created Satan, not God. God created Lucifer. The demons were not created by God. God created faithful angels who followed Lucifer, who perjured themselves and sinned, Peter says, and became demons. So it was the unfaithful Angels who had been created faithful who created the demons, i.e. themselves, by disobeying God. God did not make Adam a sinner. Adam made Adam a sinner. You see, and then the Bible says that God in Christ became sin, even though he knew no sin, became sin for us that we could have God's righteousness in him. So it was Adam who created sinners, not God. God didn't create sinners. He created perfect sinless people in the garden. So just remember this. So when somebody says, well, then why did God create this world of sickness, sorrow, death, and dying? He didn't. That's what sin did. There was none of that in the original creation. 
God says everything is good, 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 good at the end of every creative day. And then finally, at the end of the creative day of six, he says it is very good. And then you go on and read in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3 when we're going through our Genesis 1 through 11 series that man was in a perfect world. Man was in a perfect state. Man was in a perfect relationship with his creator. Everything was right. But man sinned. And thus all of these things came as a consequence. So God didn't create this world of sickness, sorrow, pain, death, all of that. God didn't create that. In fact, God is working his sovereign plan to do away with all of that. And to bring us back to what we lost in the first garden. This is why when you read Revelation chapters 21 and 22, you have paradise lost in Genesis 2 and 3. You have paradise restored in Revelation 21 and 22. God is restoring what man blew. That's why the Bible says the first Adam made everybody a sinner and sunk the whole deal. But the last Adam fixes what the first Adam fouled up. That's basically the gospel. That's the whole thing. So we know this. And then as I referred to a while ago, Ezekiel twenty-eight sixteen, referring to Lucifer, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. Well, if Lucifer is an angel originally that is faithful, now, of course, he's the head demon and he's fallen. That would imply, of course, easily that the demons were created by the Lord as well, but not really. They were actually created by the, the angels that rebelled. Okay, does that make sense to everybody? Number seven, demons did not keep their proper domain, but then sinned and became unclean evil spirits. Now, this is what Jude was talking about when he said they did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, and therefore they've been reserved. Now, that, of course, is that special class of demons that are locked up right now, because apparently if they weren't, you couldn't have life as we know it on planet Earth. When they are unleashed, as we read from Revelation 9 a while ago, buddy, they're going to wreak some havoc. But that's a time of judgment. That's a different time. It's one of the reasons why I am a dispensationalist. Now, you may not be, and that's fine. But sometimes Paul and I get the opportunity to give you reasons why we believe what we believe. And I think we, we need to do that. I'm a dispensationalist, not because God changes his plan, not because God changes. It's that as God deals with man, we have what is called progressive revelation. Now, not progressive development of God. That's not what I mean. I mean that God progressively tells us more about himself so that we know more as God moves through his revelation. And there are times when God deals with men based upon what they know. So you take Abraham. Well, Abraham is dealt with by God differently than God deals with Moses and those who follow after him once the law is given. It's kind of a different relationship. It appears to me that angels were very, very active in communicating to people like Abraham and Moses. Now, sometimes we miss that. But if you go back and you read the text of a lot of our familiar stories out of the Old Testament, if you'll look real closely, every now and then an angel slips in. 
Well, I think that's a reference to what was actually going on a lot. And that is that angels were communicating. In fact, Moses on Mount Sinai receiving the law. And remember, the law is not just 10 commandments. The law is well over 600 commandments and the designs for the tabernacle, which would ultimately become the temple and all of the temple worship and and, and everything that was involved. That's the law. There's a lot of it. Well, the Bible says that angels actually delivered that to Moses. Now, it's kind of an obscure reference. Most of us don't even either know it says it or even give much thought to it. But the angels were delivering the law to Moses. So you have these angels talking. You have Daniel. Look at the angels, how they interact with Daniel. I mean, the angel is the one who answers his prayer and gives him what I believe to be the master key to understanding Bible prophecy in Daniel chapter 9. Without Daniel chapter 9... I think we would be helpless to understand how the end times are going to play out. And I think a lot of times why there's so much confusion about how the end times are going to play out is those people do not understand Daniel 9. God gives Daniel the timeline for the entire human race, but delivers it by an angel. So as you look through Scripture, you'll see God dealing with mankind based upon the knowledge that God has revealed to him. And therefore, I'm a dispensationalist. And so when I look at the period that we call the Great Tribulation, simply because it's what Jesus called it in Matthew 24, he says the Tribulation, the Great One, there's never been a time like it before, there'll never be a time like it afterwards. Well, that can't be the destruction of Jerusalem, because that's not the worst thing the world's ever seen. I mean, there's been a lot of things since the destruction of Jerusalem that were worse than that. What's he talking about? He's talking about a time unprecedented And then he goes on to say, if it hadn't been shortened, no one would survive it. No flesh would be saved, he says. If it hadn't been limited to how long? Well, Scripture gives us clues as to the length of it. So when you you look at these times, for me anyway, studying Scripture all of my life, I cannot help but become a dispensationalist because I see God dealing with men differently from one era to another, not contradicting anything he's done before, but building upon it. So when you get to the great tribulation, you've got God pouring out his wrath on a wicked world. And God says, that cuts it. I'm done. And he brings his wrath down on deserving wicked people and wicked systems. That's what Jude's talking about here. But notice, they did not keep their proper domain, and so it kind of gives us a little bit of a pedigree uh, for the demons. Now, here's something that I think we need to clear up. This would almost seem to be a little weird until you listen to a lot of people out there talking, and you have all of these mediums who are, 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 you know, uh, communicating with demons and all this kind of stuff. They might not tell you they're demons. You know, I've had lots of people over the years say, well, how is it that these seers and these... uh, um, I can't even think of the, the word for it, but forgive me for that. But how is it that they're able to go into these trances and tell law enforcement things about crimes that they shouldn't know? And then the law enforcement check it out, and sure enough, those things are true. Well, I'll tell you how they know. Demons are telling them. Demons who were there. You say, well, why in the world they do that? To build their whole case and system. See, those who communicate with demon spirits claim to be serving God. 
Yet the Bible condemns all of that, as we'll see later on. All of that is condemned by Scripture. But what better way to promote yourself than to take your choice people that will open themselves to you and give them special knowledge that nobody else has and that they shouldn't have? Wouldn't that build your case for what you're trying to do? Of course it would. So how is it that these mediums know these things? Demons are telling them. It's exactly how they're doing it. Now, in all of this confusion... There are some people who have said, well, what demons really are, are the spirits of wicked people who are deceased. And I just want to touch on that here in the last few minutes, and I'm not even sure that we'll finish this point today, but, but I, want to, I want to deal with that because there are so many ghost shows on television today, especially if you have any kind of access to cable or satellite television. There are all these different groups looking for spirits and ghosts and they have all these gadgets that pick up these waves i I don't know how in the world did they ever in the first place invent a gadget that'll pick up a ghost i mean first we don't even there aren't any but how in the world would they know if they've never seen one to create a, a, a deal that would tell you when one's near i mean it's just nuts it's it's totally nuts but people are really serious about that And they're looking for ghosts. And I've even heard Christians, well-meaning Christians, talk about ghosts and they're afraid of ghosts and all that. We don't have any reason to be afraid of ghosts. So let's just deal with this very quickly. First of all, when a person dies, they go to a place to await judgment. Every person does. Hebrews 9.27 says this, As it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So whenever someone dies... They go to await judgment. Now, they either go to a place in the English word hell, or they go to another place in the English word heaven. But either way, they go there to await the final judgment. Now, of course, those who are believers and go to what we call heaven, whatever extent of heaven they experience is a whole different study. But they're comforted. They're they're in good shape. The people in hell, not so much. And you can see that in in Luke chapter 16. Uh, In Luke 16, verses 22 through 23, it, it tells us, Jesus one time pulled back the veil for just a moment and let us look into what we call the spirit world. What happens when a person dies? Now, here's one of the important things that we need to understand. This is not a parable. And I'm amazed sometimes at the great Bible preachers and teachers that I've heard over the years that call this a parable. There is nothing in this text, absolutely nothing, that designates this as a parable. But here's the thing. If it's a parable, it's the only parable Jesus ever told where he used proper names. Now, a lot of people say, well, the name Lazarus is in there. That's not the only proper name. Abraham is in there, and so is Moses. Now, you're telling me that Jesus would make up a fable, and to give it some oomph, he'd throw Abraham and Moses in there to make it sound more believable? Isn't that fabricating rather than telling the truth? Which Jesus is always the truth teller because he is the source of truth. He says, I am the way, the life, and the the truth, and the life, right? He is truth truth. Okay, so when you read Luke 16, here's what's happening. Jesus is talking about two real people, two real people who died. And for just a moment, he pulls back the drapes and he gives us a little glimpse of what happens when someone dies. And look what it says. So it was that the beggar died. That's Lazarus. 
and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. A whole different study about where that is and what that is. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Meaning that Lazarus was in this place where believers went, especially before the resurrection of Jesus. But the main point here is to notice that they immediately go to a place. Now the interesting thing about that place is that once they are there, they're locked in. Once a person dies, they are locked into their eternal destiny. There is no getting out. Now, obviously, the people in heaven don't want out. It's the people in hell who are wanting out. And so look at what Jesus tells us about that man who wanted out of hell. Luke 16, 26. Abraham told him, besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. In other words, you're locked. So there is no come to Jesus after you die. There is no purgatory. I mean, even, even the, the, the Catholic encyclopedia and other Catholic historians will tell you there's nothing in Scripture that teaches purgatory. That was made up by the, the Roman Catholic Church. There is no purgatory. There is no second chance gospel. These people are locked in. And Abraham tells the rich man, you're locked. Now, by the way, so was Lazarus in, in, in heaven called Abraham's bosom here. He's locked. But see, that's not a problem for those that are redeemed. They want to be locked in the arms of God. It's those who are locked in the throes of eternity without God who want to flip. Now they want to repent. In fact, so much so that if you remember the story, the rich man wants uh, Moses, uh, excuse me, Abraham to send back uh, someone to witness to his brothers. He says, look, well, if, if I can't get out of here, man, I don't want them to come here. Send somebody. And, and what was Abraham's answer? Well, they've got the Bible. That's enough. He said, well, they have Moses and the prophets. The Bible. See, the Bible will be the greatest witness against us when we stand in judgment. So, they are locked in their destiny. One more point, then we'll finish number eight, and we'll, we'll shut it down for today. All awaiting judgment will appear at the great white throne and then be banished into the lake of fire. Now... There's kind of an asterisk that I should have put here because the believers will not be at the great white throne. It's a whole different judgment called the Bema seat, and that's the judgment seat of Christ. We'll not go into that today. But notice all who are awaiting this, this final judgment are going to appear. Now look what the Bible says in Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15. You know this, then death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, what this should do, even though this was not an extensive study on departed spirits and what happens, it ought to seal forever this idea of ghosts and this idea that demons are nothing more than the ghosts of wicked people haunting folks. That is completely unbiblical. There aren't any ghosts. So let's just deal with that right now. No ghosts. Don't watch the ghost stories unless you just think it's fun to watch idiots because that's all it is. Now, demons, oh, plenty of those, and I believe they masquerade around as deceased people. And that's where the confusion comes. So let's stop right there, and if I can remember, we'll start right there next week, okay? All right, thank you for your patience. Let's take a break, and then we'll have our worship service here in about 10 minutes. <laughs>